Hello and welcome to another episode of Sons of Ignatius podcast. I am Father Niall Leahy and I'm joined again today by Eamon Walls. Hi Eamon. Hi Niall, good to be with you. We are here in Gardner Street and I'm the parish priest here and Eamon is here studying philosophy and in our spare time for fun we make podcasts (laughs) and often with a Jesuit theme and often with an Irish theme. Uh, so we're bringing those things together today, Eamon. And who is this special, saintly, I can't say Irish man, but let's say adopted Irish man that we're going to talk about? Indeed, we are going to be talking about St. Patrick, SJ. Now, anyone who knows their history knows that St. Patrick was not a member of the Society of Jesus because it didn't come into existence until a thousand years later. But what we're going to be exploring in this episode is how... The life and mission and writings of Patrick has a few touch points with the mission and the spirituality of the Jesuits. So St. Patrick, SJ. Um, did he like run schools or was he an academic? Did he give the spiritual exercises? Any of the above? None of the above. <laughs> what a lousy Jesuit he was. Also, can you think of some of the things that he's associated with? And I can tell you, having read them today if they appear in his writings. Okay, how about shamrocks? Nothing, though he does talk a lot about the Trinity. Okay, but not... Doesn't mention shamrocks. Okay, so that was a later invention, perhaps. That was. So there was a style of writing called hagiography that develops in the centuries after, and this is where we get a lot of the developments of the legends and the stories. Okay, snakes. Nothing is mentioned about snakes. He didn't mention anything about snakes? Didn't mention them. Maybe he didn't think it was important. Okay, maybe he didn't see any. Maybe there were no snakes. Okay. Maybe the snakes were frightened off even just when they heard rumor that Patrick was coming to Ireland. Maybe they got frightened off and that's why he didn't see any. Okay, so that might be another later invention as well. And the other thing he's famous for is for inventing Guinness. Correct. (laughs) No. That's in in his confession, is it? Goes without saying. No, in fact, St. Patrick did not invent Guinness. I thought that's why we Irish people go crazy for drinking Guinness on St. Patrick's Day because St. Patrick and... No? No. Oh, God, there you go. Listen, we may have to do some historical work here, some historical digging to get to the real St. Patrick. So, Eamon, why don't you tell us a little bit about his life? Sure. So the information that we have on Patrick from his own hand comes from two documents. The first one is called the Confessio or Confession, where he seems to be writing to an audience in Britain, sort of defending his, his ministry and also telling us something of his life and his faith. Why would he be writing to people in Britain? Wasn't St. Patrick Irish? Well, in fact, in his confession, he actually tells us he grew up in a place called Banham Tyburnier. We're not really sure exactly where that is, but considering he was captured by Irish raiders and brought to Ireland, it's probably on the west coast of Britain, maybe in Wales or a little bit north of that. Right, yeah, this is another shocker that Ireland's patron saint is British. Well, I suppose so. There we go, guys. There we go. We are <laughs> if, 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 only, if only that fact had been more appreciated, it could have solved a lot of heartache over the years. Things might have been less acrimonious. Anyway, sorry. So he was born in Western Britain somewhere, Cumbria or Wales or... Something like that. We're not entirely sure. But he does tell us his father was 
a man named Calpurnius, and he was a deacon, but also probably some kind of civic administrator. So he was a, a freeman. He was probably of modest but sufficient means as well. And he would have had a typical Roman education, which you know would have included things like rhetoric and how to speak. So we're in the 4th, 5th century here? Yeah, 5th century. And the Roman, whatever, structure of society hasn't totally broken down yet? It hasn't totally broken down, but it is in the process of crumbling. Hence, you have more raiders attacking what would have been Roman Britain. And hence, Patrick tells us that as almost a beardless boy, his words, he was taken to Ireland. So he was a callow youth and he's out in the fields, is he? Or how, how is he? I mean, he just happens to be taking a walk along the beach and oh, here come the pirates and take him to Ireland. Well, it does suggest in the text that, that some of the settlement was destroyed. He says that in a letter to Caroticus. This the second document that we have from. It's possible they, they moved inland, roved and attacked the settlement. That would be one way it would have happened. And he ends up in Ireland looking after, it says, a herd. And do we know where in Ireland he was as a captured slave? We don't know exactly. Two places that are often touted as the place he was a, a herdsman or a shepherd are Crookpatrick in County Mayo and Slemish Mountain, which is in a town called, or a village called Brishane, just outside Ballymena in County Antrim. Okay. So anyway, so he's either on the west coast or in the north and sheep herding away. And then, yeah, then there's a kind of a significant spiritual experience he has that brings him back to Britain. Yes. I, I mean, he does in fact accuse himself of being lukewarm about the faith. And in fact, goes as far to say that the captivity was almost a good thing. A, because he sort of in God's justice, he saw that he was not following the Lord, but more importantly, that it was an opportunity for conversion. And he found himself praying, he said, saying a hundred prayers by day and a hundred prayers by night in this place. And he hears a voice telling him that soon he will be returning to his homeland. So this period of captivity has really turned him towards God. Very much so. In fact, he says at the time, he talks about the cold the wind, the rain and the ice, but he says, the spirit was burning in me at that time. So he discovered the Holy Spirit and that's probably what St. Ignatius would call consolation, a deep sense of rightness, of closeness to God, the ability to find God in these things and finding God in nature as well, in the elements and looking around, a sense of finding God in the very place he was, which was a pretty difficult place to be. I've always thought that St. Patrick would be a good sort of eco-saint or a saint for a patron for for ecological causes because he was so close to nature and he spent many nights out under the stars and it's no surprise then that when you get to his prayers and his writings the gifts of nature are very present very much so saint patrick's breastplate actually appears in an 11th century text christ being in everything he talks about christ being in nature christ being in the mire christ being in the bogs christ being in the forests there is a deep sense in which the spirituality of the pre-Christian religions in Ireland were deeply attached to things like holy glades, holy wells, the sun. We, we actually hear some commentary about the sun being something that they, they worshipped. And so there was a deep sense of reverence and I would say almost idolatry towards nature. But what happens in the generation subsequent to St. Patrick develop Christianity and it becomes enculturated, deeply enculturated. You have this sense that God's creation is a theatre of encounter with the divine. And so it is an icon, if you like, of God. 
or a human way of understanding something of God because God has created it. It is not God, but it reflects its creator. And I think if you see creation and the world as a theatre or an icon of God, an encounter with God, then you're going to treat creation differently and with more reverence than if you think that it is something that is humanity's plaything. For example, you would treat it with the same reverence that you might treat a church. If you consider a church to be a place of encounter with God, well then obviously you come in and you pay great respect to the building itself and you certainly wouldn't desecrate it. So you might have the same approach to nature. Yes, exactly. So in that sense, the Christianity that takes shape in the Celtic areas of Ireland, Scotland and Wales is very much in tune with God the Creator. So going back to Patrick's life, you mentioned that he had a sense of being a sinner. He had done something in his life before he'd been to Ireland that he was ashamed of, you know, felt that somehow this, what's the word, exile to Ireland, you know, was somehow a just punishment for a big sin or what was that? Well, there are two things really. There is a general sense of being in some sense alienated from God through his own sloth, if you like. But he also writes of a specific sin. Doesn't tell us what it is, but he disclosed this to a friend once. And one of the reasons he's writing the confession in the first place is that this friend has disclosed this sin, which he confessed and was forgiven for, to his opponents in Britain. And this was being used against him. Okay, right. Drunkenness. Come on, St. Patrick. Has to be. <laughs> Surely he was on the sauce. He doesn't say. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't say. Okay, again, that's just me projecting mod- yes. modern day St. Patrick's Day <laughs> celebrations back into the 5th century. Okay, so we don't know what it was. We don't know what it was, but he does receive God's favour. He is told that he will be returning to his homeland. And he writes that he just one day had a sense that it was the time and he walks to the sea, I assume to the east coast, and there are a group of uncouth non-Christian men who are going to get into a boat and they initially mock him and then he waits and they invite him on board. They take him across the sea and when they get there and they're travelling towards Patrick's territory, they run out of food and they begin to mock him. Sort of, where is your God now? This all-powerful God that you believe in. You're supposed to be a holy man and here, here we are starving. Exactly. And then they come across... It's either a herd of pigs or wild boars, depending on which translation you go for. And then they had enough to eat. So the pigs just so the pigs just miraculously showed up. Well, I suppose if you understand a miracle as a kind of counter instance of the law of nature, that's that's one definition or, or something radical. It's not impossible to encounter a herd of pigs. But he certainly does seem to see this as God's providence, the way in which God shapes history through the free choices of human beings and through the natural laws that the universe inhabits. And it was, let's say, sufficiently out of the ordinary to convince these unchristian men that maybe God was on Patrick's side. Indeed. And eventually, he mentions, though doesn't really develop, a further captivity, which seems to be for a few months. He does get home to his family, who are absolutely delighted to see him. And from his writings, it seems that they have a very affectionate relationship, so much so that they ask him never to leave again. Oh, okay, yeah, they missed him, yeah. And if this was another story, it would say they all lived happily ever after. Okay, but... (laughs) But... God wasn't finished with Patrick just yet. Not yet. So he has a vision where a man called Victorious has a letter 
and numerous letters and there's one letter that has a heading on it the voice of the irish and in this letter it says we beg you holy youth that you shall come and shall walk again among us that you shall come and walk again among us so ireland the people of ireland are calling patrick back to ireland that is very much a sense and a heartbreaking sense because it means he has to leave his family but that is what he did So he has to go back to the country where he had been enslaved. Indeed, and that becomes his mission territory, his home. And the writings we get are from his ministry there. And so now perhaps we might have a little look at the sort of the the figure that, that comes across in the pages of that. What was this person like? What was his spirituality? What was his life? What was his faith? So Patrick's back in Ireland now voluntarily this time. And he has a clear sense of mission. Now, at some point as well, he was, when he went back to Ireland, he went as a bishop, right? So he has to get educated somewhere along the way. That took place in the continent, am I right in saying that? There is, in fact, a piece of writing where he talks about a desire that he has to visit Gaul, which would be modern day France. So that's where the idea that he was educated on the continent comes from. It would explain the reference to Gaul. So maybe he returns to Ireland via Gaul and some training for some studies for the priesthood and finally being ordained a bishop. Yes, and he is fairly silent about the nuts and bolts of his ministry. The hagiography sometimes will tell us about the fires on the hill of Tara and confrontations with the Druids and how he converts chieftains and the miracles that he performs. But his own writing, in fact, comes probably when he's towards the end of his life and ministry as we said, to defend his ministry. And and the thing that really comes across there is that Patrick regards himself, first and foremost, as a sinner who has been shown the mercy of God and for that very reason wants to share that joy, that mercy with other people. So the very first line in his confession is, I, Patrick, a sinner. Then he goes on to tell us a little bit about his youth, how he was drawn away from God, but how, when in Ireland, the Lord opened my mind to my unbelief and then he says he turned with his whole heart towards the lord and then that's the second paragraph and the third paragraph he says therefore indeed i cannot keep silence nor would it be proper for so many favors and graces so there's a sense first of all that he is a sinner second of all that he has been mercied by god and thirdly because of this experience he has to do something about it he has to tell people So, Eamon, you as a Jesuit, how does that resonate or echo with your journey as a Jesuit so far and your spirituality? Well, when I read this for the first time, I thought, my goodness, this could be the first week of St. Ignatius's spiritual exercises. Okay, so our listeners may well know that St. Ignatius composed a retreat called the Spiritual Exercises, and there are four weeks in it, quote-unquote weeks or four sections, so... Eamon, tell us a little bit about the first week. Well, the first week begins with us contemplating God's good creation and the beauty of it and the gift of it. And then we gradually see how through the fall of the angels and also human sinfulness, original sin, the fall of humanity, if you like, that this creation has gone awry. And one of the most challenging parts of that week is a meditation on my personal sin. And one of the Jesuits who was a formator of mine in Birmingham said, this doesn't really work unless you have an experience of screwing things up big time in your life. (laughs) Okay. But 
through that experience of meditating on your personal sin, you then have an experience of being mercied or loved by God and chosen in spite of your sinfulness. And so one of the definitions of a Jesuit is a loved sinner. And then there's this beautiful phrase at the end. There is the cry of wonder, this kind of utter wonder at the graciousness of God. And for me, that was actually the most powerful bit of my spiritual exercises. I had this image of myself sort of sitting in front of an empty cross with a big bag of sins, a bit like Robert De Niro's character in The Mission, where he carries a suit of armour, his sins basically, and being invited by the Lord to stand up and kind of walk into freedom. And as I sat there having wrestled with my sins and my like things that I'd done in my life that I was ashamed of, I was sad about sort of being able to look at those things and say, this, this is the truth of things. This is true. And the Lord saying, I'm calling you into freedom and leaving them at the foot of that cross. So in a way, the more conscious you become in the context of the spiritual exercises and the first week, the more conscious you become of, say, your personal sin history, the more you have to let go of and the more you can unburden yourself and give all of that to Christ. Yes. And as I was, in fact, reading this, it put me in mind of the story from Luke's Gospel in chapter 7, where they're at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and the woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet. And this causes a scandal. Don't you know she's a sinner? And Jesus said, her sins, many as they are, have been forgiven her, because she has shown such great love. It is someone who is forgiven little, who shows little love. So it's almost as if the more we're forgiven, the greater our love is, and the greater the joy that we want to share with people. And Patrick had that joy he had a sense of wanting to share this joy one other thing that comes to mind just as you're telling the story of patrick and his awareness of god's love in his life and god's mercy was that this happened to patrick when he was in a pagan country it wasn't as if somebody came up to patrick and preached the gospel to him while he was in ireland and this resulted in his conversion he was already let's say a christian from his family background but that when he was in Ireland, when he was a sheep herder, as Ignatius would say, the creator dealt directly with the creature. Uh, this was just between Patrick and God up on the hills. And he came to this great awareness that he was a loved sinner. That's very Ignatius as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think one of the themes that we see in Pope Francis's papacy, when he talks about having a relationship with Jesus. He emphasizes baptism. He emphasizes confirmation. He emphasizes the Eucharist. These would be the three sacraments of initiation. But he also emphasizes in and through these things a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And that for Ignatius would be an effective encounter, not just an intellectual encounter or an encounter through the sacraments where you focused only on the externals and not the grace that was you were being offered through these sacraments but some kind of felt sense of God. Yeah, yeah. And so there can be, let's say, in the spiritual or Christian life, there can be a focus on receiving the sacraments and going to Mass regularly and ticking the box and perhaps not actually being open to or expectant of some kind of religious experience in and through the reception of those sacraments. What matters is that you go, not that anything happens necessarily. I think so. You once put it really nicely on an Instagram post, prayer and cake prayer. Okay, yeah, bread, prayer and cake prayer. Check out the Irish Jesuit Instagram page if you want to. Yeah, there's a post up there about bread and cake. Go on, Eamon, yeah. So the idea is that sometimes our going to Mass, our prayer, sometimes it's not very exciting. Not a lot happens, but it's like eating bread. It nourishes us 
and it gives us strength, particularly the Eucharist. You know, that is the source and summit of the Christian life right there. But sometimes it's utterly delightful. Out of the blue, you get gushing consolation, cake prayer. And I was having a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying that, and this is something that I felt as well, probably in my early 20s, that when people talked about a personal relationship with Jesus, and it tended to be Protestants who talked about it, the people that I knew, not so much the Catholics, I had absolutely no idea what those people were talking about. And whenever I started to deepen my spiritual life, particularly with the help of Ignatian spirituality, and I looked back, I realized, in fact, I had such experiences. I've spoken about some of them in this podcast, but I just hadn't quite appreciated them. So one person, for example, said that they were in a place, a holy place. They were expecting something, but nothing happened. Then they said, oh, but I did smell roses at one point. And... Someone pointed out, well, actually, that was that's a sign that often goes along with sanctity, holiness, a manifestation of God or his saints and visions and stuff. Cake prayer. Cake prayer. <laughs> Definitely cake prayer. And so you've said this to me before. Sometimes, perhaps in our prayer, the big stuff is easily sort of forgotten about unless we actually take time to review that prayer and to realize, actually, that one-minute period of thought or feeling that I had was actually really important. Yeah. And all these years later, so Patrick is telling his story towards the end of his life or the end of his ministry, and he is remembering that early period, like in his in his teenage years when God mercied him. It's still there as a really important experience for him. Absolutely. I would say also we talked before in a previous podcast about a chirological moment, sort of a moment in your life, would include sacraments, but also the encounters with God in prayer that don't just come and go, that are in a sense always with us and from which we live our lives. And whenever you read about him talking about being a fisher of men, he quotes that passage from the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus calls the disciples to be fishers of men. And he kind of sort of of seems to make a link with his early life and doing that. And one of the unexpected treasures that I have uncovered during my study, long-suffering study of French this year, has been that the word for sinner is, I'm going to murder this (laughs) (laughs) pronunciation, the word for sinner is pêcheur. Oui, pêcheur. Yours was better, pêcheur. And the word for fisherman? Uh, Pêcheur. So the word for sinner and the word for fisherman in French is the same word. There's just a different accent on the e and so the sinner became the The fisherman fisherman. yeah that's beautiful that's beautiful i like that scene in the gospels where they're on the boat with jesus and he you know brings in the big catch and peter says to him oh depart from me lord i'm a sinful man and jesus says to peter well i'm going to make you fisher of men i always imagine in between peter saying leave me lord before jesus invites him to tells him he's going to be a fisher of men I imagine Jesus saying, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I know sin creates that sort of shame in us that, no, we can't, I can't be near you, God. I'm I'm not worthy, whatever, and leave me. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. And, And more, even more than that, I'm going to send you out and you're going to do my work for me. Maybe we could move on to Patrick's then sense of call then, Eamon, and the challenges associated with being a fisherman. Indeed, so we mentioned his close relationship with his family. In his confession, it's very clear that he regards the separation from his family as a source of pain. And he says that he's thought about going back and visiting and perhaps visiting the brothers in Gaul, he said. But 
he's very clear that the Holy Spirit has a place for him and that is in Ireland. That's where he is meant to be. So that's a real source of challenge. A second source that runs throughout both of his letters is that he regards himself as uneducated, possibly because his education was cut short because of his captivity. People have said that the style of writing in the Latin is very rustic, possibly because, in fact, a lot of the time he'd been communicating in, in the local languages or he'd learned to do so. Learned Irish, I presume. Yeah. And, and thirdly, a challenge is that he, he is still living with a sense that at any point he could be kidnapped, he could be arrested, he could be enslaved again, he could be killed. And he writes of that very real fear also. So first of all, the challenge of leaving family and friends. Second of all, a deep awareness of his own inadequacies. And thirdly, the awareness of danger at every turn. So Patrick really has to prove himself to the local chieftains and authorities. Here's this guy showing up preaching his Christian God and, well, he's not waving shamrocks around, possibly, uh, but he is talking about the Trinity and, okay, all well and good, but prove yourself, holy man. He has to be convincing, otherwise he is a real threat to the prevailing religious culture, which is some sort of Celtic paganism with its druids and nature worship and all, and all that. So, yeah, he will have an acute sense of danger and I suppose that just throws him more and more on God and saying, okay, God, you really need to show up for me here because, yeah, my life's in danger. One wonders, what could it be that would make someone choose that kind of life? Because he even writes in one of the documents that the Christians in Britain were sort of saying he was crazy going to Ireland. So if even the Christians in Britain, the authorities are saying, you know, it's a dangerous old game you're playing here. You know you're in serious, you know, in a serious position. Because Christianity was the, let's say, the state religion in the Roman Empire. So after the conversion of Constantine and, or, or a little bit after that. So Patrick has really moved out of the safe space for Christianity, which is the old Roman Empire and into a pagan culture. And there are people kind of saying, what are you doing? Why are you going there? Like that's, you don't have the protection of the empire there. And I think it's no surprising that, that Jesuits too have often been great missionaries. Like as we record this, we are celebrating the novena of St. Francis Xavier. And I would link this back to something that comes at the start of the spiritual exercises. It's called the principle and foundation. And by this, St. Ignatius has in mind, this is what our lives are about. And he says this, The human person is created to praise, reverence and serve God our Lord. And by doing so, to save his or her own soul. And then he goes on to say, it follows from this that the person has to use everything in the world insofar as they help towards this end and to be free of them insofar as they stand against it. And then he goes on to say that we should use things insofar as they help towards this end and we should be free of them insofar as they don't. And then he says we shouldn't, for example, prefer health to sickness, a rich life to a poor one, fame or disgrace, poverty or riches. His point is that if something is taking us towards God or helping others towards God, then it is to be used. And if it's not, we're to cast it aside. The point of our life is to be saint, to be with God, to be like God. And I think only some kind of conviction like that could really motivate a person to live in such arduous conditions. So Patrick wanted to serve God and serve God's mission. And if that meant danger and say putting his own personal life and possessions in danger well then so be it he wasn't particularly attached to his own personal safety he was a real 
risk taker. Indeed, and one of the phrases that is common to Patrick and Ignatius is to help souls, or even say to help people. He was going there with the belief that he was actually helping these people by bringing the good news of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what he was doing, Mm -hmm. and that's what he was passionate about. Okay, so he brought the good news of the gospel, which obviously includes preaching Jesus Christ, triune God, the sacramental life, Christian practices, but there was also a very strong social dimension to his preaching as well, wasn't there? It wasn't just religiosity or faith practices or pious practices and beliefs. There was also a social justice element in the message he was preaching as well. Could you say a little bit about that, Eamon? Well, this, I suppose, brings us to our sort of third theme, if you like. He exemplifies a faith that does justice. And we see this coming across in his letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. Caroticus was a warlord, if you like. Historians say probably someone who was living in the southwest of Scotland in an area that would have been the Kingdom of Dalriata, which would have encompassed the northeast of Ireland and the southwest of Scotland. The Gaels lived there. To the right were the Picts. And with the fall of the Roman Empire, they were able to take much more liberty. And these soldiers of Caroticus had come to Ireland the day after the baptism of new Christians, slain some of them and taken others into captivity. Wow. And this letter, it seems to actually to be a second correspondence with them. Just before we get to that, how rough would that have been for the newly baptized Christians? You know, I mean, imagine like they entered into that with a sense of hope and expectation and joy and probably maybe the Easter Vigil, you know, so it could be Easter Vigil or Easter Sunday. They're baptized and boom, next day, (laughs) captivity. That's really rough. He says, I am at a loss to know whether to weep more for the people who were slain, the people who were taken into captivity, or he says, the men whom the devil has taken for his slaves, i.e. the perpetrators. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really Christian worldview, I have to say, to feel greater sorrow and remorse for somebody who has done evil than somebody who has suffered evil. You're better off being the victim of injustice than the perpetrator of it because then you're really in trouble. But he does this so humanly. He doesn't just say, well, it's okay because people are now in heaven. You can read the text. He is deeply wounded and sorrowful that they have died. But he does say that they are with the Lord. He is confident they are with the Lord. And so he has a sense of the kingdom of God that is eschatological which basically means it is something that the Lord will bring in the fullness of time. Heaven and earth will come together, a new creation will unfold. Death is not the end. But at the same time, he has a sense that the kingdom of God is not something that we merely wait for passively. It is something that we are summoned to work for right now. And his letter to Caroticus in one sense, as an excommunication, it seems like the soldiers of Caroticus are at least nominally Christian. Otherwise, why would you bother? But he says numerous times what he actually wants them to do is to free the captives, but also through tears and penance to be reconciled with God. Right. And how does this go down with Caroticus and the boys? Do they repent? Well, we don't know. We don't know. This was just, I suppose, an effort that he makes. But for me, it links really clearly with a direction that the Society of Jesus took in 1975 at the 32nd General Congregation. Which is a meeting of our, let's say, worldwide leadership. 
Indeed, and what comes out of that is that the fourth decree of GC 32 is that the mission of the Jesuits today is the service of faith, of which the promotion of justice is an absolute requirement. So Jesuits have this sense that their ministry is a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to God. That will involve the temporal as well as the eternal. And it's, let's say, an integral part of the mission of Jesuits because it's an integral part of the mission of every Christian. There's some people who would say, for example, Jordan Peterson recently came out with something quite scandalous on Twitter, and he said that there's nothing Christian about social justice, and salvation is something which relates solely to the individual soul. And yeah, rightly so, Catholics were kind of outraged on Twitter by saying, no, there is a very clear social dimension to our mission. And yeah, it does involve, as I've clearly said, the creator dealing with the creature and and that relationship between God and his children. But also it's about trying to organize the life of God's children here on earth in a way that respects their dignity and gives everyone a fair chance in this life. So really it's bad form by anybody who tries to make it solely an individual pursuit and takes away that social dimension. Yeah, I would direct Dr. Peterson to Matthew 25, what's often known as the parable of the sheep and the goats, a parable of judgment, and says, the Lord will say to those in his right hand, where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was thirsty? You didn't visit me when I was imprisoned. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So there is a very clear sense in which we are judged on the basis of our love. And that love needs to be performed in concrete actions. And that love does not just need to be performed by individuals, but the social structures need to promote that love as well. So the laws need to be just and and all that. It's not just we're not just relying on individual acts of charity or kindness to build the kingdom of God, but we're also relying on laws, etc. Anyway, we're probably getting a little bit off the topic of our conversation, but anyway, I think we've made the point. Yes. Just as a kind of a, perhaps a final thought, I think the letter to Caroticus and his soldiers exhibits for me another central theme of the second week of the spiritual exercises, and it's called the meditation on the two standards. St. Ignatius has us imagine two camps, and the standards are like the flags that an army would have at the front. One is the camp of Christ, one is the camp of the devil, and it's very clear that he understands the way of living of these soldiers as very much putting them in the devil's camp. And there's a sense in which we must choose. What camp are we going to be in? Under whose standard are we going to fight? Right, like making a clear decision. Who am I with? Am I with Jesus? And am I going to give my all to Jesus? Or am I going to be with the devil? And I suppose if you're for the devil, you're really just for yourself in a way. You know what I mean? Under the standard of Satan, it's like, I want riches, I want wealth. I want status, I want me, me, me. So another way of putting it is like, do I want to be just all about me or do I want to be all about God and all about others? Um, And there comes a point in your life when you sort of need to have some thoughts about that. Yeah, there's a choice. One of the gifts that we have is freedom. And it's a freedom to choose, yes, but it's only really truly freedom whenever we choose the good. Because as Patrick says of these soldiers, they are slaves of the devil, as he puts it. Another way of saying that would be that if our choices are for vice and for evil, we become slaves of that, so we lose our freedom. In fact, the only way to preserve it is to pursue what we're made for, which is the good, which is the Lord.
Eamon, we've covered a lot of ground there, and I hope this will be of interest to people. I hope our listeners have found something to do on St. Patrick's Day other than just going to the pub and drinking too much cheap beer. And I hope that this podcast may have brought some interest to your St. Patrick's Day and deepened your knowledge and love of St. Patrick. So, Eamon, you just have a lovely idea for bringing this episode to a close and working with that idea of freedom. What is it that Ignatius invites us to do with our freedom? Well, Ignatius says that our freedom is for something and it's for God and, and for the things of God. And the prayer at the end of his this retreat, the 30-day spiritual exercises, is called the Sushipe. And it's where we offer all of our lives, all of our freedom to God. And that's what Patrick did. He gave his life and his lifeblood for the evangelization of Ireland, for the people he met. And that's what Ignatius invites us to do. And this is the prayer that he asks us, dares us to pray. At the end of the spiritual exercises. So... We're going to take this together, Eamon. So I'll start. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All that I have and possess, you have given all to me. To you, O Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Amen. Eamon. Always good to talk and thanks for studying St. Patrick and for sharing all that with us and look forward to doing another episode with you soon. God bless. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. God bless. Bye.